0: The Israeli Supreme Court is extraordinarily powerful. The Israeli right is absolutely correct about that. It is extraordinarily powerful in terms of standing, who can appeal to the court, in terms of um, uh, you know, many, many just disability, what issues a court can can cover. But this this effort that we've seen over the last three months to to refashion it, to rebuild it into a different kind of judiciary would make it probably the least powerful in the free world and the most politicized or one of the most politicized. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum.
1: This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, I'm Scott Kahn. I've been reluctant to talk about the proposed judicial reforms in Israel. People are extremely polarized, and I didn't see the benefits of effectively throwing more fuel on a raging fire. But I realized that while many people talk about what the Likudle government is trying to do, there's less information about what's actually happening and its ramifications. And with the dramatic events of the past week, when Defense Minister Yoav Gallant publicly suggested that the government needs to pause the reforms, then was fired by Prime Minister Netanyahu the next day, which then led to unprecedented protests and strikes by a huge percentage of the population, which in turn led to Netanyahu's calling for a temporary halt to the judicial reforms while both the coalition and the opposition tried to work out a compromise, I realized that it was important to try to explain what's really going on, why these events are taking place, what they mean, and what we can expect in the near future. For that reason, I was honored to speak to Khabib Redigur of the Times of Israel, who offered a clear-eyed approach to explain the story in its entirety. This is not an Orthodox story per se, but it is the biggest story in the Jewish world, with serious ramifications for all of us, including members of the Orthodox community. And because the current government is composed of Likud and, technically speaking, six other Orthodox parties, we as an Orthodox community need to know what's going on and whether those who claim to represent Orthodox interests are in fact doing so. I'll avoid editorializing here and make only one comment. I've heard some people suggest that even if we don't like everything about the current government, we should be proud and excited that it's composed of so many Orthodox political parties. Because I'm convinced that the worst thing for Torah is the proliferation of Orthodox parties and the politicization of religion, the existence of a government dominated by Orthodox parties and which pushes through some legislation of Jewish law is a reason to cry to God for mercy not to raise our voices in celebration. Because events are moving at a very fast pace, I'm releasing this episode the day it was recorded. I hope it will provide information and context that very often is lacking from public discourse. Khaviv Gore is a veteran Israeli journalist who serves as senior analyst for the Times of Israel. He has covered Israel's politics, foreign policy, education system, and relationship with the Jewish diaspora since 2005, he has reported from over 20 countries and served as director of communications for the Jewish Agency for Israel, Israel's largest NGO. Javiv Redigor, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. Scott, thanks for having me. It seems that there's a huge amount of ignorance and misinformation about these proposed judicial reforms, the ones that were just put on hold temporarily. So, Javiv, could you start us off by simply outlining the proposals that Likud
0: and its allies in the coalition have been putting forward? Sure. Um, you know, there are many, many moving parts, um, 12 to 15-ish, uh, somewhere on that order. So let's focus in, let's say, on, on on just two or three that I think clarify both what Likud is trying to do and also why it's aroused so much controversy and so much opposition. One of them um, is changing the way we appoint judges in Israel. We have now a Judicial Appointments Committee. Uh, In which the Supreme Court delegation on that committee is about a third of the, it's literally a third, the three out of nine members um, has a veto on appointments to the Supreme Court because you need seven votes to appoint a Supreme Court justice. And the coalition, uh, the government has a veto as well. It has enough members to veto. Um, and that looks to uh, the Israeli right members of this coalition like uh, an exaggerate, like like uh, too much power. In other words, uh, there there are in the world in the democratic world courts and judiciaries generally with significant amount of power to appoint themselves. Ireland is actually moving in that direction. Japan, there 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 are examples, but Israel is an outlier in the amount of power that it gives its judges in that respect. Um, And and what they want to do is they want to take that committee and in the original proposal that the government advanced actually simply give a, a majority on the committee to the government, just literally to the ruling coalition, to the executive branch, which in the parliamentary system Israel has also controls the legislature. And so this was you know shifting from a very very um independent appointment process in terms of the judiciary it's a in terms of the ability of politicians to affect the judiciary to uh, a completely politicized one. Uh, there is another element of this reform, which is making Israel's basic laws those are the twenty one laws that we have that essentially lay out the structure of government, making them Uh, immune to judicial review. In other words, the theory is that they're the Constitution or some kind of proto-Constitution. And so the court has the right to strike down laws if they contradict that Constitution, the basic laws. But it shouldn't be able to strike down a basic law, right? Now, the court has never struck down a basic law, but it has in recent years suggested that if basic laws are anti-democratic in some way, according to the court's opinion, then it would might have that power. To prevent that from ever happening the coalition wants to include in this reform, making basic laws immune to judicial review, which makes perfect sense to everybody. There's just one problem. Basic laws can be changed by simple majorities. And not only can they be changed, they are constantly changed. They've been changed, I think, 23 times in five years, just in the last five years. And so what in effect the coalition will be doing is saying that any law that they want to pass with just 61 seats out of 120, the narrowest majority, which by definition any government must have in the Israeli parliament, any law they want to pass and not allow the court to even consider it, they just slap the words basic law at the top. Um, and and there are many, many, many other pieces, requiring a supermajority on the court in order to cancel a law or to count a law as, as unconstitutional, um, severely limiting or possibly even completely removing the reasonableness test, which courts have overused. The Israeli Supreme Court is extraordinarily powerful. The Israeli right is absolutely correct about that. It is extraordinarily powerful um, in terms of standing, who can appeal to the court in terms of um you know many many just disability what issues a court can can cover um but this this effort that we've seen over the last three months to bring it into to refashion it to rebuild it into a different kind of judiciary would make it probably the least powerful in the free world and the most politicized or one of the most politicized all of that is true until two weeks ago things got a little more complex as the coalition began to offer other options but that has been the debate. The debate has been taking a judiciary from one extreme to what is essentially another extreme, the opposite extreme.
1: Okay. Thank you for that summary. That makes a lot of sense and is in line with what I've been hearing. I just know that I believe there's a lot of misinformation, so that's very helpful. I do want to ask you, though, about the appointing of justices. That particular reform doesn't seem to be particularly extreme. In the United States, for example, the president nominates a justice to the Supreme Court, the Senate confirms, and then the Supreme Court has a new member. That seems to be very much in line with how democracies operate. For that particular issue, the appointing of justices, which was that which was going to go through first, if I recall. Why is there such an uproar about that? That just seems to put it in line with much of the West.
0: Yeah, uh, there's a substantive debate and there's a political debate, a debate over trust. To the substantive debate, you're absolutely right. Um, There is, in general, in in the democratic world a negative correlation between how powerful a court is, what powers are given to it in its constitutional order, and how politicized the appointment process is. And so if a court is very powerful, for example, the U.S. Supreme Court is considered fairly powerful. You saw that in both in Roe v. Wade in the 70s and the overturning of Roe v. Wade recently. You saw that in 2014 when the U.S. Supreme Court decided that there's gay marriage in America now, right? It's a very, very powerful court. And because it is so powerful, um, there is a as a way to rein it in there's a there's a very profoundly it's utterly politicized the appointment process right And it's split between president and Senate. but I believe I have to check this, but I believe six or seven of the justices um, were appointed by a president and Senate from the same party. In other words, it isn't in, in practice all that. Now, um, so if you take other courts that are less powerful, for example, the British high court is is much weaker than the American one. Um, it's also much more independent. Its, it's appointments process is, is less dependent on politicians than in the American case. So there's a negative correlation that's the general rule. The more powerful the court, the more political the appointment process. Israel until today has been an outlier in the sense that the court has been extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily independent. And this is, the idea here is we make it a very, very political appointment process, and the court also is very, very weakened. And so we go from being one outlier on one end to an outlier on the opposite end. Um, Why might people be concerned by a politic by a government being able to appoint a justice, right? At will, in other words, without even having to reach over the aisle for the opposition in parliament, but just literally being able to do so. In the United States, you have many, many, many checks and balances that you simply don't have here. You, you, When you are the government... Not only are you, like any parliamentary system, by definition have the confidence of the Knesset, which means you control a majority in the Knesset, but in fact you control individual lawmakers, because in the Israeli system there's almost no primary, there's no regional representation, there's, we have a, a single constituency of the whole country, and Israelis don't actually vote for a candidate, they vote for a party list. Well, who puts number 12 on a party list? Who puts the number 7 on the Likud list? Or the number 4 on the Yesh list? The party leader. By, by and large, it's more complex in Likud because there is a primary process, but de facto there isn't. De facto, it's about what Netanyahu wants. And, and, and on the center-left, by the way, it's much worse than, than in Likud. In the center-left, there isn't even a primary process of any kind. It's just literally an appointment by Yair Lapid or Benny Gantz. And so you have a situation where the leaders of the parties are the appointers of their list, which means that the people sitting in government, the ministers of government are the appointers of the parliament (laughs) who, who allegedly are a different branch of government that can rein them in. Right. So they can't rein them in. Um, And because of that, when the U S president elected on a particular four year schedule from a particular way of cross-sectioning the U S population, Nominate someone, and then the U.S. Senate elected on a different schedule. Those are six-year terms instead of four, and elected by a different cross-section of the U.S. population. Of course, the House has its own cross-sectioning and schedule, and and so when when these two institutions, the White House and the Senate, each confirm and then appro- each nominate and then confirm a candidate, you have enormous power in the Senate. I'll give you an example: Joe Manchin, <laughs> the Joe Manchin phenomenon. Joe Manchin was until a couple of weeks ago I haven't been following too closely so listeners will know more than me but Joe Manchin is a democrat was a democrat right but he didn't play de- the democrats game in in the senate why because he comes from West Virginia and that means he is elected from the by the people of West Virginia he stands on his own he can say no to a democratic president all of those so for a president to pass someone through the senate even when it's controlled by the same party is still a much much broader. There are many many checks at play, and there are many ways of. Um, none of that exists in Israel, and so to say that that you know they'll be able to then appoint judges is simply to say um, the government. It's literally just to have Joe Biden appoint in in practical terms to have Joe Biden just appoint anyone he wants at any point in you know at any time that he wants without any real consent process. Um, When you don't also then make basic laws very difficult to change, for example, instead of simple majority, make them 80, right? Why wouldn't they pack the court? We've seen something like 140 laws Proposed by this coalition in the last three months that include profound changes to the system, and some of them are just trolling. But they're trolling that the opposition, people who didn't vote for this government, see as horrifying. For example, let's add 12 more seats to the Knesset and hand them automatically to whoever wins, to whoever forms a coalition. Why? So we never have to ask the opposition's opinion about anything. These are people who are not going to add five justices to the Supreme Court, which currently has 15, just to pack it. Really? And so there's a sense of a deep distrust. No institutional um, uh, limits really exist that'll make it hard for them to do anti-democratic things. And this government has behaved in ways that burned whatever trust it, it had. I mean, huge numbers of the supporters of judicial reform are very worried about how this government has handled, handled this so far.
1: I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense, both in terms of the fact that this government does not inspire confidence in me, and in terms of the fact that the reforms seem to be going too far. I'm not against judicial reform myself. I'm for judicial reform. I'm against going from one extreme to this extreme, which seems to be a real problem. At the same time, I want to ask you, because back before Barack had changed the court effectively in the 90s and made it what it is today and strengthened the Israeli Supreme Court, couldn't one argue that on some level, should the rights reforms go through, it's really just moving it back to the way that the court was in the 70s and the 80s. And Israel managed to remain a democratic state in that time anyway.
0: I'll give you one example of a difference between today and then that has nothing to do with the court, but a profound effect on this conversation. In the 90s, in the early 90s, there were two major parties in the Knesset, Likud and Labour. Likud and Labour constituted much more than half the Knesset. And Likud and Labour had real powerful primaries, honest primaries. And they had multiple camps within them and competition and, and, and an internal democracy. That's absolutely erased today. A labor prime minister like Yitzhak Rabin had real problems inside his party, real opposition inside his party. People who were not sure about Oslo were not convinced that Yasser Arafat wasn't going to you know, launch terror attacks if he has a state of his own. Um, and on the other side, on Likud, you had Netanyahu and then Sharon after the Second Tifada really ran that party. or after 1999 really ran that party but there were many many camps and primaries were very you know you always had surprises in primaries all of that is erased the the old left has essentially collapsed There's about four seats left in the Knesset from the old left-wing parties. What's replaced them are these parties without any primary process of any kind. And on the Likud side, Netanyahu has essentially gutted the internal institutions of the party, leaving really nothing left and everyone deeply loyal. I'll give you an example for Likud not having an internal democracy anymore. In the last, I would say, well, just the last three months. In the last three months, right, we haven't had a single voice from Likud, of any Likud lawmaker, say anything against any of the dozen bills involved in this reform. None of them have anything to say that is critical on any piece of this in any way. And that's terrifying if you are looking at this from the opposition and saying wait a minute what's going to limit the government from going overboard the this this what they they, the the joke in the opposition was that Likud had had taken a vow of monastic silence suddenly they're all you know none of them could say anything really there's nothing in this entire reform that any of you have any problem with of any kind and that's in the democratic party in other words that's in the party that still has primaries on the other side there isn't even that so if we go back to a court that is what it was in the 90s, um, that that will not be. The, by the way, the, the idea of going back to a court that was in the 90s, that court had the ability to prevent appointments to itself, that old court. And so it, it's also not true that it would go back to then. It would be a court where the government could simply appoint people, right, based on the original proposal, the government could simply appoint whoever it wants. So it would not be that court from the 90s. But even if it were the checks that we used to have, for example, a Knesset, much, much more independent from the government, no longer exists. Yeah, but there
1: have been some voices which have suggested that the process needs to slow down. For example, famously, the defense minister, Jovo Galant a few days ago, called for the process to be slowed down. He said it very loudly. Of course, he was fired for that, which might prove your point. There have also been some other voices, for example, such as Yuli Edelstein and others in the Likud who have said, we can't do this this way. Is your point that... There have been no comments on the substance, on the content of the judicial reforms, but there has been in terms of slowing it down, because there has been some sort of dissent in terms of maybe we should slow this down a little bit. We've heard small murmurings
0: recently. We have in the last two weeks heard, I think small murmurings is a great way to put it, We haven't heard any substantive criticism. We've only heard tactical criticism. We shouldn't have gone quite this fast. We should have sold it better. We made this little mistake and that little mistake. No one has said Netanyahu made a mistake. No one has said, you know, let's say, you know, I don't know what, the override clause is another very significant clause. The override clause says, once you've already forced the court to have a supermajority vote out a law, and you the court can't touch a law if you slap the word basic law into it and you've already stacked the court with whoever you want in it possibly even this isn't part of the reform but this is the suspicion of the opposition possibly even expanding it in order to staff it yourself once all that's happened and the court still rules a law unconstitutional then the knesset can vote with a simple majority of 61 to simply ignore what the supreme court said to pass the law anyway right that's the override clause of 61 that's in the original proposal Now, if you have that original, you know, if you um, have um, the override clause is something that the original scholars and the think tank, the Kohelet Policy Forum, which is a think tank heavily involved in piecing together this coalition, they have come out and said, and they've been saying it for a while now, that was a negotiating tactic that's meant to be tossed out. You know, you start from a slightly more extreme position than what you want so that you get what you want, right? Please don't pass that, Right. There's not a single member of Likud who's come out against that. There's just the Knesset's ability to, even if the Supreme Court within its powers does rule something unconstitutional, the Knesset can just say no with a simple majority. That is something that not a single Likud member of Knesset has been willing to speak out on. So I would say that what's astonishing to everyone in this country with Gallant's speech is how courageous it was for him to literally come out and say, guys, this is causing damage. Let's stop and have a dialogue about a fundamental change to our constitutional order. Let's do this seriously and not like not, not, not as a war on the other half of the country. That took courage. And you needed to be Joav Galland, former naval commando and former major general in the IDF, to have that courage. I think that really is the exception that proves the rule.
1: I've been told by somebody who says he has insider information that when Netanyahu fired Gallant, it was not because he spoke out against him. And by the way, I don't believe this is true, but I want to have your insight into this. He said, that's not the reason why. The real reason was, number one, because he wasn't strong enough in denouncing the reservists who were saying they would not show up for work. And second of all, because he did it on a Saturday night without speaking to Bibi Netanyahu first. Is there any truth to that claim? Because the person is saying that he knows from the inside that's the actual reason, and not simply because he said something in opposition to the prime minister.
0: That doesn't make any sense to me. Why would Netanyahu then fire him and cause all of the ruckus that happened after that? Um, he sent many, many thousands, we don't know if it's 10,000 or 100,000, but many thousands of right-wing voters into the streets to join the protest. Uh, who just lost trust in Netanyahu's capacity to handle this moment when he fired Gallant? Um, and if he did, by the way, he didn't tell anyone why he fired Gallant. He hadn't. He, he to to this as far as I know, at this moment, he still has yet. We're days later. He still has yet to speak about why he fired his defense minister at such a desperate and you know, desperately sensitive moment. Um, I, I suspect what 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 is the general. Um, conventional wisdom within Likud at the moment that you hear from any Likudnik who's convinced you've turned off the camera, um, is that Netanyahu is surrounded by advisors who include his family. The left likes to make a lot of stink about that, and and, and there's some justification for it, Um, but not just his family, some of his political advisors who have essentially convinced him that this all needs to be handled as if it's a war against an enemy. And that's how you've seen this handled over the last three months. Fast, um, a real legislative blitz, um, by the way, favoring bills that help him personally, even over the judicial reform bills. And so uh, giving a lot of Israelis reason to think this is about corruption and authoritarianism rather than correcting the Supreme Court. Uh, there have been just dozens and dozens of these bills. Um, and, and so I, I think that he got very, very bad advice and, um, and, and, and just acted acted based on this theory that if you push it through fast enough and hard enough, everyone will live with it.
1: There are a lot of important points you made there. I want to ask about them. So first of all, in terms of the corruption issue and the personal benefits that Netanyahu might gain from the reforms, is there real truth to the fact or to the claim that some on the left are making that the reason or a big reason for the prime minister's desire to have this reform is because he can somehow thereby end his corruption trial? Or is that a left talking point and isn't really true?
0: I do not think that's true, and I don't think that's true. Not from any inside knowledge. You can't ask Netanyahu and get a straight answer, right? That's that's not where anyone. Um, so I I don't know what's in Netanyahu's heart, but I can tell you that Netanyahu has a much easier path to canceling or significantly weakening his 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 trial. Let's imagine he's now passing constitutional changes just for his own personal survival in this trial, which. I don't know if I would put it past him and that's for everyone to decide. I, you know, the man, I don't have any more knowledge of the man's soul than anyone else, but he could just weaken the attorney general's office. He could split the attorney general's office into two positions. One is the advisor, one is the top prosecutor. He could then appoint a top prosecutor. Those are all things that can be part of this process. And by the way, are part of this process. Uh, Fundamentally changing the legal advisory system in the ministries and the attorney general's office is part of this larger reform that what I said was 12 to 15 pieces. This is a very sprawling legislation. Um, And that would already fundamentally change his his trial. But I, I think, you know, his trial is not going to kick him out of office. I hate to say that to my left wing friends, but it's true. Uh, he doesn't legally have to leave office until he's exhausted all appeals, which is probably six, seven years from now. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's if he doesn't change the law by then, which Likud has proven it is willing to change constitutional basic laws for him. But what I mean by corruption and personal benefit is the gifts law. I don't know if anyone outside of Israel would follow this law, but the gifts law is a law that would allow all public servants, that's 800,000 Israelis at every level of government, including city council members, to receive anonymous gifts by law. And the law contains no tracking mechanism. When you give to a primary campaign in Likud, or when you give to a party political campaign of any kind, first of all, most campaigns you can't give to under law in Israel. There's very, very restrictive campaign finance law. Second of all, when you can, you must report it to the state ombudsman. Not anonymous to the candidate, anonymous to the public. No, no. Currently, you have there's no such thing as anonymous giving. Currently, all of it is literally publicized in the state ombudsman's website, and all giving is public. There is a law passing through the Knesset right now, which incidentally is passing faster than the judicial reform, and Netanyahu refused to stop it until this morning. When the sheer shame of the fact that the judicial reform was paused, the right is very angry at him, but his gifts law is still moving forward, forced him to stop it. But this law would allow all public servants to receive donations to any legal problem they have, any legal expenses or any medical expenses of any kind. Legal expenses includes, for example, a rape trial. Uh, Former President Moshe Katsav fell because of a rape case where he went to prison for rape. He could then have donations for that, right, under this law. Um, It can also be for your own libel lawsuits. Our current police minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, has a habit of suing people for libel, then losing the libel case, but he's doing it to silence people who call him, I don't know what, racist or whatever. He does it routinely. He could now just literally have it all funded by anonymous donors without any reporting requirements. That's the law moving forward in the Knesset today. And the purpose of the law is because Netanyahu was given a $270,000 gift by a cousin who passed away, and the courts ruled that he can't keep that gift because of gift-giving restrictions under current law. So they're just changing those restrictions for his cat, but they're going to bring massive, massive open open doors for corruption throughout the Israeli uh, governance system. And that is something that no one on the right can explain, and a lot of people on the right are complaining about. And so we're weakening the court while also demonstrating to Israelis that maybe we're not responsible enough to weaken that court. Maybe if we're going to weaken the court, we need other institutions, other checks, other ways of stopping the bad behavior of politicians. They're proving the case for the court while pushing forward a weakening of the court. Okay, then
1: let me ask you, why did Prime Minister Netanyahu put the brakes on this judicial reform a few days ago? Obviously, they were Huge demonstrations in the streets, but I believe that the talk of civil war was really overblown. That wasn't going to happen. No one's going to take up arms. What exactly stopped him from moving forward as he originally wanted to?
0: He lost the right. The short answer is he lost the right. Um, the protests have been astonishing. No one expected them, and they were they were they were caused by the government. And there was the way the government went about doing this. It wanted to massively weaken the Israeli court. It proposed a very extreme version of the reform. 70% of this reform would make Israel more democratic because it would weaken the court to a healthier level. It would potentially introduce, for example, make the basic laws immune to judicial review, but then make them hard to change, right? Make them require an 80 vote. No coalition's ever had 80. So if you have an 80 vote to change the basic laws, you've just given us a constitution, which we don't have and now we would have. Write a bill of rights, put a bill of rights into the very law that weakens the court. Just as a signal of democratic intent, people said this openly to the government, and they refused for three months. And in the meantime, they proposed these insane bills, really, truly insane bills, bills that right-wing activists who have been passionate and eager and screaming in the streets for this reform are calling insane and are very bitter at this government for, for pushing forward. Um, um, for example, allowing searches of homes without court warrants. For example, just bills that are hard to believe. Um, All of this kind of insanity, all of this chaos, all of this just unmanaged event has been moving forward, and it's produced a protest movement that, according to polls, has actually drawn one in five Israelis to the streets. This protest movement has been enormous, astonishing, far beyond the left in terms of voters, far beyond anything anyone expected, including uh, uh, in the opposition. The opposition leaders, by the way, have almost entirely been missing from this protest movement. This really is bottom-up. Netanyahu called them anarchists and accused the Biden administration of funding them, and that didn't, didn't help anybody. It's also not true, but it also didn't help anybody. But And slowly, slowly, we've seen also a buildup of what you mentioned about the military, uh, the refusal of, of reservist duty and things like that. And then last week, the firing of Gallant. The firing of Galant in the middle of rising violence, in the middle of massive threats from from Hezbollah in the north, in the middle of terror wave, in the middle of all the things that are happening, um, the National Labor Federation, the Hista which Likud loves to pretend is socialist left-wing, but in fact the majority of the Histadrut leadership are actually Likud, and several of the largest labor unions in the country are actually part of the Likud party. Uh, Labor unions in Israel... Go to whatever political party is in power. It's not quite an ideological divide. Long story short, the East of Druid Labor Federation concluded that Netanyahu has literally just lost control, and so it declared a national strike, shut down the airport, shut down you know schools were about to shut down, and that's when Netanyahu said, "All right, I'm, I can't go into a nationwide shutdown, you know, just because I mishandled literally everything." And so he he paused it. I have to tell you, they're now. They they see this as not a negotiating period. They see this as a breathing period. They want to come back on the 30th of April when the Knesset returns from its recess. They want to come back with, with right-wing demonstrations to face down the left-wing one, with uh, with a new media strategy, with with a lot of more, you know, all the manipulations the political campaigns know how to do, and really give a fight. And that's that's the current plan. So that was my next
1: question. This pause, in your opinion, is not really about finding a negotiated solution in the middle, but more to buy time in order to develop a proper strategy so that temper's cool, things calm down, and then come back and ram through the exact same thing? Or do you think there is really a possibility, a realistic possibility, of a true negotiated solution that, if not everybody, at least large numbers of people on both sides could get behind?
0: I hate to say it. I'm very pessimistic in the short term. I'm pessimistic for both sides. I don't think this opposition... The opposition is an organic grassroots force. But the only political vehicle that can carry this message to the Knesset are Benny Gantz's National Unity Party and Yair Lapid's Yashatid Party. And I don't know that they're up for the job. I don't know that they're up for negotiating seriously, publicly, in a profound way, a process more akin to the Philadelphia Convention or the Federalist Papers, which are all, which was all public and was all debated, and they were convincing the people, even as they were advancing with this, um, to to piece together a more serious constitutional order for Israel, the actual order that Israel needs. I don't know if they're capable of it intellectually. They sent to the negotiating teams that are meeting with President Herzog uh, this week and next week, um, they sent uh, attorneys who are essentially party Uh, loyalists rather than scholars of constitutional law, as opposed to the Likud who sent real people who helped draft these bills, uh, people like Aviad Bakshi, professors, scholars who really understand the questions at hand. Um, So I don't know that they understand the scale of what needs to be done and are clever politicians, clever enough politicians and wise enough constitutionalists to do this. Um, And on the Likud side, I simply am not convinced that there's a will. I, I really think that Likud thinks it's a war with half the country and wants to win that war. And Netanyahu is not the kind of person he he used to be 10 years ago, I don't know that he is today, the kind of person who wants to come out of this with a a richer and stronger and more robust constitution. He really wants to win and be more in control than he is now. One signal we've had is that uh, someone sent Yariv Levine, the justice minister who proposed this original plan, on January 4th, sent him an SMS telling him about, you know, they feel that they're sad that this are stopped, etc. And Yeriv Levine sent back, we will come back um, after, you know, the recess, and we will have those campaigns, and we will have those demonstrations. And we will, you know, it'll be a shame if those who stood against us in our own camp still stand against us, a reference to Galant and Edelstein and those people, and we will get it done. And so I think that that's where Likud is at. We've
1: talked a lot about Likud. Now, the ultra-Orthodox parties, in particular, Gimel and Shas, presumably one of the reasons that they want the reform to go through is because of that override clause, because they want to enshrine in law some of the benefits that they get. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but that's what I understand. For example, permanent exemptions from the military and so forth. So I'll ask if that's true, but I'm a little bit mystified about Smotrich and Ben-Gvir and their parties complete following behind all the reforms in the same sort of way. Because they aren't obviously beholden to Netanyahu in the same way that the Likud is, they can speak out, and yet they've been as strong or stronger in their desire to completely override the current justice system. What's their motivation?
0: They think the justice system is left-wing and therefore an enemy, and therefore dangerous for the country, and therefore should be, uh, you know, should have its wings clipped. It's not more complex than that. Um, several of those uh, phrases are direct quotes from them, and they genuinely believe it. They've also proposed legislation over the last three months that clarifies their intentions, Um, if it has to do with immunity for IDF soldiers, even if they commit crimes in the West Bank. um, Pieces of legislation like that that are not advancing, but nevertheless... Uh, Are I think where where they're at. So that that's very simple. The um, the Haredi parties are are very complex. They're they're in a much more complicated situation. Incidentally, right now the Haredi parties are absolutely terrified of how far this went and how bad this went. And they are the biggest source of pressure on Likud right now to seriously engage in a compromise to find a real constitutional solution. Um, And at the beginning, why is that? Um, because they feel like a minority, and uh, they feel exposed, and they feel as though half the country now hates them as part of this process. They feel half the country believes that they are a threat to their democracy, and they are still a small group part of the country. There's still maybe, I don't know, 10%. How you count Kharidim is a complicated question. It's a lot of self-identification, and it depends on how you phrase the question, but roughly 10% of the population. Um, and and I think that you know they are also part of the of the folly that, that brought this down or brought this down temporarily. Um, they proposed bills to make um, you know make a immodest dress at the Kotel for women um, be uh, subject to six month in prison, uh, be a felony, be a crime. Um, we're not talking about nudity or bikinis; those are already a crime in holy places. Um, there are public decency laws. We're talking about elbows. We're talking about just a tourist who doesn't know. Um, and and, and Shas proposed this bill. And then when Likud, when Netanyahu called them up desperate to tell them to stop because a lot of American Jews are screaming at me. Uh, American Jews, by the way, go to the hotel more than secular Israelis. So that it, it hit America before it hit Herzliya. Um, when Netanyahu called, Shas got very... First of all, Shas canceled the bill, but second of all, they got very offended because it turned out that this piece of legislation had been written into the coalition agreement Likud had signed with Shas in December. It was literally... The text of it was an appendix to the coalition agreement. So, did they mean it? Did they not mean it? Was it just... You know, I think they meant it. And and, and um, they are passing laws massively expanding the power of the uh, rabbinate. They passed a law that was utterly stupid, allowing hospitals not to bring chametz into the hospital on pesach now there is no problem there's simply no such problem of chametz in hospitals on pesach there's there's kosher for pesach food in every hospital in israel from the most secular in arab hospitals my wife we had four kids uh three of them uh my wife gave birth to them in hadassah and one of them at saint joseph in east jerusalem a wonderful palestinian hospital top-notch Meet, it meets all the Israeli criteria, breathtakingly wonderful, run by some Catholic order, I don't know enough about it to talk more about it, they had glatt kosher food, and 30% of the women giving birth there that day were Haredi, just because they're a great hospital, and it's not hard to get glatt kosher food in Jerusalem. And so um, there simply has never been this problem, but now because they tried to pass the law, there are Israelis organizing, Israelis who don't eat chametz on Pesach, organizing to smuggle chametz into hospitals on Pesach. Why? Because who are you to pass laws making it illegal for me to, right? Um, the one thing Israelis do more than anything else is brit milah. It's also the only thing the rabbinate doesn't have legal rights over. It it's not an accident. Long story short, um, they feel in a very weak position. And, and, and I think that um, if this reform does come back, I think, ironically, when Yariv Levine does try and bring this back and try and relaunch this, what I consider really a stampede, I mean, a war, in late April, early May, I actually think he's going to discover that the opposition will be reignited. But I also think the Haredi parties will be very, very afraid and and, and not willing to go with him quite the way they have until now.
1: You spoke just now about the coalition agreements that Netanyahu is prep notorious for not following through on. Avi Maoz recently quit the government, sort of, because he said, I have no power. What I was promised isn't coming through. What about what, Bibi Netanyahu just promised to Itamar Ben-Gvir about some sort of National Guard, or I'll call it a private militia if I want to be a bit pejorative over here. First of all, what is that? And second of all, does it actually have a real chance of being made? And if it does, what is it exactly? And what can Ben-Gvir do with that? Because that really does terrify me.
0: So first of all, um, Netanyahu has just promised Ben-Gvir something that Netanyahu promised Ben-Gvir three months ago in writing. Uh, but this time he really promised, so it's completely <laughs> different, and and that's why everyone's worried. Um, no one, no one who's worked with Netanyahu in the last decade trusts his word, and that's a real big problem. By the way, that's why he's stuck with the most extreme factions in Israeli politics. He simply has nothing to offer Yair Lapid or Benny Gantz because they don't believe him at the negotiating table. Um, but basically this is a unit that was not even uh, a right-wing idea. It, after the May 2021 violence, uh, there was the war in Gaza, and then there was a lot of violence inside Israel, where a minority of Israeli Arabs who, quite frankly, simply subscribed to the Hamas ideology and vision of Palestinian nationalism, uh, took to the streets, and there were, there were I don't know what to call it, street gangs, pogrom even in some places where it got very bad, like Lod um uh, by these arab groups uh inspired by imams you know giving anti-semitic uh speeches and sermons um and that violence and the sense that the israel police didn't have enough cops to deal with it created a call for a new police force capable of dealing both more delicately and if necessary also with with the proper uh, equipment and the proper training with that kind of inter-ethnic conflict that might be on the rise Um, and the government approved it. In other words, the last government, the Lapid Bennett government, approved the establishment of this strange National Guard thing, this half-police, half-army police thing that would... um, And then this government, Bengvir, wanted to have that be his in his new national uh, security ministry, which is simply the old public security ministry, the police ministry. There's no difference. He just renamed it. Um, And Netanyahu then immediately did not do what he promised. And so now he will do what he promised. I would bet you quite a bit of money that unless Benver actually threatens to leave the coalition, Netanyahu still won't establish the thing. Avi Maoz is complaining that he was made the minister of basically Jewish identity, and that doesn't mean anything, and nobody's letting him anywhere near any real programs or budgets or institutions. But that's just par for the course. Everyone understood going into the government that that's how Netanyahu would deal with it. Incidentally, the moderates in Likud think that's a good thing. In other words, Netanyahu promises all the extremists everything they want and then doesn't do it. And that's how the country remains sane. That's, that's a, an argument in Netanyahu's favor uh, in their view. This topic obviously is one which we could speak about for hours, but we do not have very
1: much time. So I want to ask you one last question regarding economics. What is the large discussion that goes on, both in Israel and abroad, about the threat to the economy based on the judicial reforms? Like, for example, anecdotally, I've noticed, and it could just be that I'm seeing something that's not really there, that when the reforms seem to be paused or halted, the shekel gets stronger. And when there is more talk about moving forward, the shekel seems to get weaker. For example, earlier this week, the shekel was at 3.65 to the dollar. And then after Netanyahu put a pause, it became 3.54 to the dollar. Almost immediately, it just jumped up like that. It became stronger. Is there really a
0: threat to the economy based on the judicial reforms? And what is it? Um, I would say, so first of all, I'm not an economist. I'm a political analyst. Um, So I'm, I'm already in uncharted territory and nobody should take anything I say seriously. On this point. On the other stuff, I'm definitely right, and everyone else is wrong. But on this point. <laughs> but I would say that um, w- when you actually read the economists' letters, the letters from Harvard economists and, and the letters from Nobel-winning economists that have all come in and said, this is dangerous to the economy, they all share one characteristic. They're all essentially the argument, and all economic research backs this up, that democracies have stronger economies than dictatorships. So Israel, just don't don't become a dictatorship. That is really bad economic move to become a dictatorship. Now, Likud then responded to these letters by saying, yeah, but our whole argument is that this is going to make us more democratic. So thank you, but no thank you. In other words, the basic assumption that that's what's happening here, this is becoming an authoritarian country, is a mistake, and therefore this is not what's going to happen. The money started leaving And then Likud started getting worried billions and billions have left Uh, meetings with intel on investing billions more in the israeli economy were pushed off and then Likud started getting worried and Likud started blaming the left for making the high-tech industry of the world start to pull its investments from israel and this all got very ugly i have a very i I suspect and i suspect from smarter people than i talking to me about this um, uh, including people connected to facebook and google and intel in israel Uh, who simply said what's actually pushing people out is the chaos it's not it's emphatically not you know any intel doesn't care how the israeli supreme court is nominated or appointed it intel happily does business in china and intel just simply doesn't get into the deep the weeds of these questions what intel is worried about is that this place isn't being governed it's ungoverned right now. It, 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 but at the end of... I mean, there's supposed to be a budget law. There's no budget. The state hasn't been working on a budget. The the, the 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 Knesset has been so obsessed with this big reform that nobody has actually done anything else. We're probably heading into another intifada, some very serious round of violence with the Palestinians. We're probably heading into some kind of a global slowdown. Everybody's already seeing the slowdown. And this country is at war, and it's a war... Inst- Uh, with itself instigated by its government nasrallah has announced that there'll be a war now because the israelis are fighting amongst themselves this is a good time to attack i don't think he's that stupid but who knows he's been in the past he's made that mistake um and so intel is just looking at this place and saying yeah maybe maybe we wait until they have the faintest idea what they're doing before we put 20 billion more dollars into the economy i think the chaos is the actual source uh, and and not the specific reform the specific reform is at fault for being the kind of reform we're being pushed in a way that caused that chaos it is the government's fault in my view but they're responding to the chaos as soon as things stabilize assuming we know how to stabilize our political life again uh, I, I think all of our strengths will still be useful and all the money will come back
1: Okay, well, it's good to hear a bit of nechama, a bit of consolation at the end of a conversation, which was not always very encouraging, although certainly very, very interesting. Javiv Redigur, I know your time is valuable, so thank you very much for joining me today.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit JewishCoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences